Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, please. If you're uh, new to our church, uh, my basic plan for preaching is to preach through books of the Bible and take breaks every so often when the topic uh, perhaps requires it for uh, Easter or Christmas or things like that. And uh, the book of 1 Corinthians really lends itself to that because there's a lot of heavy material in the book of 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of pretty direct confrontation and and, uh, and so we, we go through a chapter or two and, and uh, take uh, some time for other topics and then come back. And today we're coming back to chapter 7. Um, and just let me read just the first few verses to start the context going in your mind here. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. This, top, this chapter is going to be talking about marriage. And it's going to be talking about a lot of challenging things in regard to marriage and singleness and family and so on. But I, I, I note, you know, in the, uh, if, you, uh, if you are a fan of the internet, if you have the internet, if you occasionally surf the internet or read your Facebook post, you see people posting things about marriage and the family and how things work and how they don't work, and I saw one of those this week. And uh, this, uh, this fella uh, wrote a, uh, um, an article, it was you know, a couple pages long, entitled, Five Reasons We Can't Handle Marriage Anymore. And uh, he says something really true right off the battle, right off the bat. If I believed in Freud, I'd call it a Freudian slip. <laughs> Marriages today just don't work. It's a pretty simple concept. Fall in love and share your life together. Many of you will ask, what gives me the right to share my advice? This is a fellow who has a regular comment on stuff in the world, um, and, and uh, I don't know him, I've never heard of him, but... But uh, he says, many of you will ask, what gives me the right to comment on this? I've been divorced myself. So I guess in regard to marriages just don't work today, he, he is an expert at that. <laughs> I've been divorced myself, but I'm only one of the many people today that have failed at marriage. And while some of us have gone through a divorce, others stay in their relationships miserably and live completely phony lives. These same people, though, are quick to point a finger and judge others for speaking up. I've spent the better part of the last three years trying to understand the dating scene again. Back when I met my ex-wife in 2004, things were just so different. Social media had yet to explode. I had this desire to ask her about her day every day simply because I didn't know about her day. Texting was just starting to make its way into mainstream society. So if I wanted to speak to her then, I had to call her. If I wanted to see her, I had to drive to her house and knock on the door. Everything required an action on my part or on hers. Today, things are different, though. Our generation isn't equipped to handle marriages, and here's why. And he goes through a whole series of factors and frankly, he identifies some really, some really good uh, arguments about uh, why they are not equipped to handle marriage. But I don't know if, what he, if he even wrote, if he even understood what he wrote right there when he said, we're not equipped. Inherent in his analysis is that today's world pushes against marriage and almost makes it impossible I'd like you to think about a passage of scripture we already considered that, and we always consider it from the perspective of, isn't it great what God can do? Would you just consider it today as a description of the society of Corinth? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's sexual promiscuity, Idolaters, people who worship things other than God. Adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, 
covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now look at that list and ask and answer this question. Was their society that much different than ours? Now for sure they didn't have texting. Well, actually they did if they, the rich people did. They would write something down and tell one of their servants to run it down the road. <laughs> their society was not much different than ours. And it's into that society that God spoke the truth of 1 Corinthians 7. You know what? Can, can you imagine the questions these people must have had when they got saved, they started to get right with God, and then the Apostle Paul started to talk about marriage and family and child-rearing and the way to do it in a, to honor God? Look again at that first verse. Here, he's been gone from them for a couple of years or more, and they write this letter, and he says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. This is, apparently, this is the first thing they asked about. The first six chapters of this book are not things they asked about. He knew there was problems. He addressed them. But here's the first thing they asked about, and somehow they asked a question to which he summarized the answer this way. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. I don't know what their question was, but in the next thousand words, he gives a real detailed answer. And I just want to say to, to this fellow here, I know you're not equipped to handle marriage. I'm here to equip you. Better said, God's here to equip you. And we are going to look into this chapter and understand what has God given us to help us be equipped for marriage and the family, not only that's a blessing to us, but that is an honor to him. Now, one of the promises we need to understand right up front is this little promise. And if, if you don't have this verse memorized and underlined in your Bible, you should. Because it's a little short promise that holds big potential for us. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. You know what that means? It means you are not on your own in living the godly life. When God calls us to something through his word, he is right there saying, I will empower it and, and, and I will help you to do it. Now, we have to take steps. We have to move forward. We have to act in righteousness. But when we do, he is there to empower that righteousness. And so I'm fully aware that what I'm going to talk about today and in the next few weeks to some people sounds impossible. When I talk about lifelong marriage that is joyful and peaceful, that sounds impossible to some people. But I want to say it's not impossible if God is at work in you. He is faithful, and he will do it. Now, when we read, I'm going to read just part of this chapter and give you a, a feel for some of the things we're going to be talking about. Let's follow along, starting in verse 1 again. Now, concerning the things of which, uh, which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That doesn't sound very encouraging, frankly, to me. Because I have a desire within me to touch a woman that is a God-given desire. And right up front, I'm going, oh, are you telling me I have to be celibate all of my life? Ooh. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by, through consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God. 
one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) There's a whole lot of stuff there that we don't talk about a whole lot, but we're going to talk about it all. But in order to do that well, I think we need to, first of all, build a framework on which all of the truths of this chapter are going to hang. And that framework is the framework of saying, what is God's big picture for marriage? Marriage has gotten all kinds of um, ideas and concepts attached to it through our society. And so it's good for us at the beginning of this study to just stop and say, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a bunch of details that go with the instructions, but we need the whole big instruction to start with. And I just want to overview, to survey over what God says about marriage in, to begin with today so that, we, so that as we work on these details, we'll all be thinking of that same picture together. So the first thing that we need to understand about marriage today is this. Marriage is God's plan, and it's planned. It's talked about in Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it's not good that I will be alone. I will make a helper, helper compatible to Adam. We're going all the way back to creation. If you read Genesis 1 all the way through, you would see the days of creation. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. We would see those days of creation, and we would see Adam and Eve created, but it's not till chapter 2 of Genesis that we see this little detail. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. Here's the key, and here's the key of why God has written this passage this way and why he did things this way. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. God brought all the animals by, and Adam was smart. He was smart enough to name the animals. He was created with intelligence. He didn't need to go to school. God created him smart right out of the ground. And he named the animals, and he was smart enough to say, you know, there's two different kinds of each one, and I see him coming by here in pairs. And he looked around, and he said, where's mine? And God did that on purpose. Because God knew Adam needed a match, and he knew he was created mankind, creating mankind with the basic need of social connection through marriage. That was God's basic pattern. Now again, as we go through chapter 7, we're going to understand that God says there's nothing wrong with being single. So don't construe anything I say today as criticizing a single person for their singleness. Okay? God doesn't criticize that way. But God's basic creation was for this, for this companionship, and so God did things in this order so that he would do this miracle and Adam would get it. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You understand that Adam didn't write verse 24 and he didn't write verse 23. The the divine narrator wrote that. We have Adam actually speaking By God's inspiration, the writer of Scripture wrote down the words that Adam actually said, and then the writer of Scripture, probably Moses, said, this is why marriage happens. God created it to be this way. Adam and Eve didn't have a mother and father to leave, but they did become one flesh. Now, here's the important thing I want you to get today, or in this point. There's a whole bunch of things I want you to get, but marriage was created by God. It is not the result 
of an innate urge to preserve our kind in the evolutionary scheme of the species. We do not get married because somewhere a zillion years ago, we figured out we've got to reproduce or we will be obliterated. It was not an evolutionary urge. It is not an evolutionary urge. And so when you read articles about marriage that are saying, well, the reason men are not true to their wives is they have the urge to reproduce, to preserve the species, you just get your big red pen out and put a big circle and an X through that and say, no, this is not an evolutionary urge turned into a civil ceremony. God created marriage. God created us, men and women, to be joined together and to family to come from that. Marriage is not a social construct which worked in years past but is now obsolete because of our progressive social evolution. If you don't know this term right here, you should memorize it, especially the term construct. In recent years, it's become... Uh, popular to say, well, that's your truth. I have my truth, you have your truth. Your truth is your construct. You sat around and thought up, this is what works for me. You constructed your philosophy of life. Many people would refer to marriage as a social construct. In other words, sometime in society's past, they got together and said, this is the best way for things to work in our society And so they created what we call marriage today. And that was really good for them in their stage of social evolutionary development. But now we have progressed way beyond that stage of evolutionary development. And we know today that two men or two women or two men and one woman or two women and three men can have a family, can have a marriage. No, Marriage is not a social construct. It is a creation of God just as sure as the dirt that we're standing on. If God created the dirt, he created marriage. And if he didn't create marriage, he didn't create the dirt. You're either believing in an all-powerful God who set this whole thing in motion or not. We don't often think of it, but our concept of where marriage came from is going to be directly related to how it goes and where it goes. Marriage was created by God on purpose to be the union of one man and one woman. That's absolutely clear. When God caused his truth to be understood and written by man, he spoke of the creation of the world and marriage in the very first and second chapters, and I know God didn't give it in a chapter, but let's call it the the first two segments. The first two segments speak of marriage in the family. How important does that make this to God? I think it makes it as important as the creation itself. We often talk about how important it is to understand that man was created by God, we have an obligation to God. Hey, marriage was created by God, and in marriage we have an obligation to God. Marriage is God's plan. Number two, marriage is for partnership. You will notice the clever use of a series of Ps, most of which I purloined, not from the dictionary, but from another commentator on the scripture, a fellow named John MacArthur. You might have heard of him. And I, I added a couple of them myself and modified a couple, so I'll give him two-thirds of the credit and I'll take one. But all the P's you can remember, okay? And maybe you can mer- memorize that little outline to help you as you go forward. Number two, marriage is for partnership. The foundational concept of marriage, if we say, okay, marriage was created by God, what's it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a partnership or a companionship of a man and a woman. It is not good that the man should be alone. God created Adam with a need for a wife. Now again, when we study 1 Corinthians 7, God is going to say something that he never said any other time in his word, and that is God does enable some people to live a single life. And that's perfectly okay. 
But the general rule, the general tone of creation is this. It is not good that the man should be alone, nor is it good that the woman should be alone. I will make him a helper that is comparable to him. And here is the fulfillment of that. They become one flesh. I understand that in the sexual act, that there is a physical joining of the two, the one flesh. This is talking about far more than just the physical joining. We use the word, and I will use the word going forward, the word oneness to indicate this one flesh union. God created man to be joined to a woman and live in a, in a committed relationship. Here's another article from the uh, internet. You know, everything that's on the internet is true. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of people think that. They think it's either true or smart. And when they read an article entitled, Is Marriage Obsolete? They go, yeah, I think it is. I think marriage is obsolete. He talks about various ideas of why he thinks it's obsolete, and he cites a bunch of resources, a bunch of experts. Listen to this summary sentence, though, almost at the end of the article. One thing is for sure. The desires for love and sex are the most consistent human experience in the entire world. Why is that? Oh, it's, it's an evolutionary urge to preserve the species. No, it's not. It's because God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. God created Adam with the need, with the capacity, with the desire for companionship. And he created the woman out of the man, so she's the same way. And he created us for a one flesh, a oneness relationship. Marriage is not obsolete. It's just challenging if you don't know the Lord. If you know the Lord, it's a piece of cake all the way. Were you all listening? Just that's, That should have been more like that. One commentator put it this way, and I think there's a, there's a good little term. Genesis sets up marriage as a creational pattern that remains ordinary, proper, and good for human life in general. I like that term, creational pattern. It's not a mandate. It's not an absolute you have to, but it is a creational pattern. We are created that way. And the nature of marriage is a one flesh partnership. Number three, marriage is for procreation. So, and in chapter one, God focused on that element of procreation in marriage. And if you don't know the term procreation, that's a fancy way for saying having children, okay? To, to create, we, we don't create like God created because he created out of nothing, but we join two things together and, and there is a, a form of creation. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply, it is the first command of God to the man. If we understand the instruction, if, if we put together a chronology, it would appear that God gave this instruction before he gave the, the prohibition about the tree. It is God's intention for us to have children. Again, another creational pattern. God doesn't say that having children is spiritually superior to not having children. I think that's a concept you could tuck away. We're not talking about spiritual superiority or inferiority. We are talking about creational patterns. What God says is that marriage and childbearing are God's design for mankind. It's become very fashionable in our state, legal to redefine the family in some other way than a one man and one woman. If you don't have a male and a female in the marriage through medical science, you can fill in the missing part and have children. That is not God's plan. God's plan, 
his general plan, his creational pattern is for a man and a woman to marry and to bring children into the world as he enables them to. Number four, and this, this touches back in particular, we'll come at this next week um, with uh, 1 Corinthians 7, marriage is for pleasure. Marriage is for pleasure. When God got done with his creative work, the days of creation, this is what he said, God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. That includes the desire and the urge for sexual connection between a man and a woman. It is very good. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, I'll go to Proverbs 5. This is a, a, a great reference where the wisest man who ever lived, that's what God called Solomon. He said this, let your fountain be blessed. He's talking about your, your life source, if you will. Rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Always be enraptured with her love. That's not just a command to be true to your wife. That's a command to enjoy your wife, enjoy your husband. And uh, certainly in 1 Corinthians 7, um, God's in verse 2, because of sexual immorality, let each have his own wife, each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection that is due to her and likewise the wife to her husband. And he's going to talk about the fact that we have an obligation to bless our spouse with a participation in the sexual union of the marriage. Marriage is for pleasure, it's absolutely correct. One of the craziest missionary conversations I ever heard in my life, I heard out in Spain with a, a fellow named Rich Brown, a great missionary out there. He was showing Sue and I a few sites, and we went in the store, and, and we were looking for some curios to take back to our children, so I'm engaged in looking at these things. And, and for those of you that are men, it was a, it was a sword store. <laughs> Can I get a... Ar, 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 ar. Yeah, I took a sword back to my son. I don't know if you could do it now on the airplane. Yeah. So I'm over here all engaged, and I don't speak Spanish. You know, hola, you know. Como esta frijole, that's about it. You know, that's all I got. <laughs> so I'm doing this, and I hear Rich, he's engaging the shopkeeper in a conversation. They're talk, 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 talk. And again, I, I don't think I understand one word they're saying, except I keep hearing the word sex, sex. I, and, and I thought, what in the world? So when we left, I said, Rich, were you talking about sex to that fellow? He said, Yeah. He said, you know, the Catholic Church is the big deal here in Spain, and that fellow's a Catholic, and the church says the only time you can have sex is to have a child. And he doesn't like it. <laughs> well, come over to our religion, fella. <laughs> Not only is it okay, it's an obligation to your wife and to your husband. Marriage is for pleasure, and if yours has become unpleasurable, it is an indication that something's not right, but it can be. It can be. Marriage is for pleasure. Number five, marriage is for a picture. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter five, please. Ephesians five, I'm having you turn to this passage, and we're gonna turn to one more before we're done because I'd like you to remember this is a critical passage for the family. If you don't know that already, you should, uh, this is a passage you should know, you should meditate on before you get married and after you're married. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wife as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Wait a minute, I thought you were talking about husbands and wives. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and see that the wife, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is for a picture. God uses several illustrations of our relationship to Christ, concrete illustrations so that we can understand how it works. One of those is the head and the body. We speak about this often in terms of all Christians of all times being part of the body of Christ. He is the head. He directs the church through the word, through spiritual leadership, but he is leading. He is in control. We are his body. And you see that sprinkled in throughout this passage. But there's another picture he uses. He talks about the building and the cornerstone. He calls Christ the cornerstone, which in that day, there would be a big stone that they would lay, and it would define square and level and plumb for the whole rest of the building. That stone was to us like we pour a footer and get everything all just so, and then the building is built on top of it. Christ is that foundation. And the foundation is strong and sure and true, and so the building will be strong, and it can be built on top of him. But then this this last picture here, the wife and the husband are a picture of Christ and the church. Do you see how he's going on about husbands and wives loving each other? And then he goes, this is a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. The mystery is this. The word mystery means a previously unrevealed truth. There are several of them in the New Testament. It doesn't mean hard to understand. It means God kept it covered. He kept it hidden until just the right time, and then he opened it up. The mystery is this. The relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the relationship between the Christian and Christ, or between the whole body of Christ and Christ. The wife has a responsibility to follow her husband in part because God wants your marriage to be a picture of the relationship between me and my Savior. The husband has a responsibility to lead his wife to righteousness. The key element of leadership here is helping your wife grow to godliness. And that includes whatever sacrificial acts must be done to make sure that that happens. The husband is to imitate that love of Christ The wife is to imitate the submission of the believer in the church, and together, that relationship, when it is lived out righteously, is to be a picture to the world. Marriage is a picture. We have responsibilities in marriage because God said it's going to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. We can look at that as a responsibility, or we can look at it as a privilege. The truth is that this is both a model and a responsibility. As a model, it teaches the wife to follow her husband's lead and teaches a husband to lead his wife in godliness. As a responsibility, Christians are to show the world how Christ and the believer relate to each other. Do you remember a guy named Moses in the Old Testament? And, you know, he's leading the people out of Egypt, and they're coming along, and they came to a point where they needed water. And, boy, they were, they were, they were having a set to because they didn't have water, and God said, Moses, go over there to that rock, take your staff, and strike that rock, and the water will come out. And he did, and it did, and they all survived and, and had a great life. They move along, they move along, they move along, they come to another point where there's no water. And God said, now Moses, go down there and talk to the rock. Tell it to open up and bring forth water. But the people were chipping, chipping, chipping on Moses, and he was so angry, he took his staff and he whacked that rock twice. The water still came out. Remember what God did? God said, you're not going to the promised land, buddy. I told you to speak to that rock, not to strike it. 
Now, we're, we, we don't get a clue really what that was about exactly. Obviously, he disobeyed God. There's a sense in which we look at it and say, it's not that big of a deal. That's the way we think. But when we fast forward to 1 Corinthians 10, we read this. That rock from which they drank was Christ. The rock from which... Wait a minute, now Christ wasn't in the rock. No, the rock was a picture of Christ. And when the rock was struck, the water came out and gave life. There's a picture there of Christ being struck. He was killed. But what came forth was life. And so when Moses went back the second time and he said, doggone those people. God said, you messed up the picture. He messed up the picture. And God said, I just can't tolerate that. I'm sorry. We should not be surprised that when we ignore God's pattern for marriage and substitute our own pattern, that we experience failed relationships. People in the world today think there's something wrong with marriage. We need to change that thing because surely I'm not contributing to the failure. No, God says you are the problem. And you've got to pick this up as a divine piece of art and care for it. People say, oh, we don't need a formal commitment. It's just a piece of paper. Well, then sign it. Well, I don't want to do that because I don't know what the future has. That's right, you don't. We can live together without being married. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Two men, two women, they can have a real marriage. We can marry but still have an open relationship. In other words, we can be married and be adulterers at the same time. We can marry but still be focused on self-fulfillment. We don't have to be all about oneness. We can marry and divorce and marry again as we like. God's plan for marriage is not multiple choice. And if you mess with the picture, you will reap difficulty. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 has become really, really poignant to me lately. If we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. Paraphrase it this way. When we obey God, there is blessing. That doesn't mean our life will be without difficulty. I understand that. But when I, when I choose my own path... I should expect that the wages of sin will be some form of death. Marriage is a picture. Number six, and, and this is going to be borne out big time in, in 1 Corinthians 7, marriage is for purity. Marriage is for purity. Um, let's, let's look back there at uh, 1 Corinthians 7. He said, the Apostle Paul essentially does say this, it's great if you could stay single. But because of sexual immorality, you should have a wife or a husband. In other words, he, he realizes there's a creational pattern, and very few people are gifted by God to stay single. And so, you know, you, you might want to dedicate yourself to a single life. That's great. But if you can't do that, then the pure thing to do is to be married. God is not saying that marriage is the divine steam valve to keep young men and women from exploding with desire. He's not reducing marriage to that level. He's not saying marriage is just so that people can be righteous in their sexual expression. But God is saying that marriage is the right place for sexual fulfillment, the only right place. And God did create men and women with the desire for both companionship, the social relationship, and sexual fulfillment, which is the, the physical relationship that's connected with it. So when God says in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, your righteousness, and then he defines what that is, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Could anything be clearer than that? This is God's will. 
that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor. When God says that, he means it. And when he says this in Hebrews 13, marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. Anything else is fornication or adultery. So marriage is for purity. We understand that one of the purposes of marriage is, is to provide the right place to enjoy God's creation. Does that mean there is no other righteous way to have sexual fulfillment? That is correct. Number seven, the last point that we're going to consider today is this. Marriage is to be permanent. Turn with me to Matthew 19. This is another passage that you ought to be an expert in. You ought to know where it is in your Bible. You ought to be able to turn there and say, these are the words of Jesus. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7 has some important details to add to this passage, and we will add them um, as we go through, but there is a basic rule given here, okay, a basic rule. 1 Corinthians 7 adds some details to that basic rule, but this is the basic rule, and here it is, starting in verse 3. The Pharisees came to him, testing him. And saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason or for any reason? Now, if you don't know the history on that, they re really did divorce people for just any reason. You can read some of the writings of the Jewish rabbis who, who sort of gave what we'd call formal commentary on the scripture. And they basically said, if she burns your breakfast, you can divorce her. I'm not exaggerating. And... And, you know, obviously things didn't start out that way. They got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, the Pharisees were great at justifying their behavior. And so they came up with all these kind of balancing ideas. But it, it was really, you think our society has a lot of divorce? The, the difference between our society and that society is in the, in the Jewish society of that day, divorce was all one-sided. It was all the husband divorcing the wife. the wife. The women did not have rights. They did not have the legal status that women do today. And so today, it, it, maybe that's changed, but not the quantity of divorce. Um, verse uh, 4. You know, he, they said, can he get the divorce for just any reason? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said... Do you think it's an accident God put those two words right there in this text? Not just God created them. He created them and made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. If there's any doubt that the Genesis passage is a norm for us, this should take that away. Christ said, this is the plan, the two become one. Verse 6, so then they are no longer two, but one, flesh. Now, stop there just for a minute and think about that. My wife and I are, you know, she goes to work in Bellingham and I go here. We're, there's two bodies, but in God's mind, we're one. We are one entity. They are no longer two, but one flesh. God sees that. Therefore, whatever God has joined together, it, we learn right there that, that that one flesh joining is done by God. When two people say, uh, we're going to be married, God says, boom. God sees it that way. God is the one who makes that spiritual reality. Verse 6 says, therefore... What God has joined together, let not man separate. Therefore, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and then to put her away or to divorce her? Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so or it was not God's will. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. 
Now, let me just put some points on the board here. Marriage is a union of two who become one. Get this in your mind. One plus one equals one. One of the real problems that even Christians have with marriage is thinking that marriage is a, is a roommate situation where he has his pursuits and I have my pursuits and, you know, we're, we're sort of like two egg beaters. Every once in a while we come around and touch each other. That's not God's image. Marriage is a union where two become one. And, and I would also say this needs to become the pursuit of Christian marriage. No, nobody has this down right out of the gate. But it needs to be the pursuit. And I won't ask anybody to raise their hand but I'm guessing that some of you that have been married longer than me know, yeah, I'm still working on that. Because I know I'm still working on that. Maybe, I'm, maybe I need to be in remedial husband school. Now understand this. Look at Malachi, all the way written before Jesus came to earth. The Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce. Get the reason, though. It covers one's garment with violence. Do you understand that when two are joined together, that to divorce is to rip that apart? I imagine if the paper could talk, it would say, that didn't feel good. Don't talk to me about an amiable divorce. Now, I know some of you have been divorced here, and I'm not, this is... Believe me, when I get done with this series, you'll understand a whole balanced perspective on this. I believe that there are times when divorces are righteous. That's what Jesus says right here, and that's what Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians 7. That's still what happens. And that's why we need to take dating so seriously. Man, I, I can remember when I was engaged in approaching marriage, I kept saying, oh, God, you know, this, this is a great woman, but if this ain't the right thing, please don't let me do the wrong thing. I can't imagine what would have happened if I just tripped into marriage with one of those other girls that I dated. Well, I can imagine. And I can imagine it, would, it could have been substantially tougher because we need to pursue marriage in light of the fact this is a picture that God has of Christ in the church and he wants me to be pure, and he wants me to be one with this person, and, and he wants it to be permanent, and so I need to take this seriously. Marriage is, to be, is a union of two who become one. A divorce tears that union apart. Marriage is till death. The key definition, Jesus doesn't say marriage is till death. What does he say, class? Who gets to change your marital status? God. And God does that. There are many of you here who have, who have, have put your spouse uh, in a grave. And you understand that. But that's God's doing. That's God's doing. And he's the one that gets to do that. That's the same reason we're against abortion and we're against euthanasia and those kinds of things. Because it is in God's hands. He is the one who gets to decide life and death and length of marriage. Marriage is till death. The divorce certificate was an allowance, not an approval. God said very clearly, you had a hard heart. He's talking about their forefathers. And what he really did, if you look at the history on it, is the women had no rights. And so when a man said, I'm going to divorce you because I just don't like you anymore, he had to write a certificate of divorce so that as she went forth from that marriage, people could say, oh, okay, that guy was... He just divorced you. Not that you were an adulteress or not that you, you know, had some other real problem. And so the certificate of divorce was protection for the woman. It wasn't God said, well, if you get a certificate of divorce, then everything's okay. Mm -mm. Just the opposite. God said it was because of the hardness of your heart. And Jesus says adultery is the only righteous reason for divorce. I don't find any conflict with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, because Paul, by God's inspiration, enlarges on this and puts a couple of other possibilities in play 
But in terms of two, let's just put it this way, in terms of two believers, the only righteous reason for a divorce would be adultery. And then we're going to talk much more about that. And so, but I know I'm going to say some things throughout this, uh, throughout this short series that are going to stimulate your thinking. And please come and ask me about it. Please, please, please. Because uh, as long-winded as I am, I can't say it all in one sermon. Um, the key idea here is this. Is divorce, as we generally know it, generally know it, righteous? No. Our kind of divorce is much more like the Pharisees, just for any reason. Would you look, though, at one more point that just is a little verse that people don't take much note of, and it's verse 10. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, do you understand what they're saying? This is the disciples, these guys who we think, whoa, spiritual giants. They're saying, they're there with their mouth hanging open. Are you telling me we can't get divorced? And they're saying, if that's the case, then you shouldn't get married. Now, what does that say about their, their concept of marriage, their ability to be married? It says they didn't know how to do it any better than this guy. The only way they knew to handle it was get divorced and start over. They were, they were, they were flabbergasted. Wow. Lifelong, joyful, peaceful marriage is supernatural. But that's okay. Because Christianity is supernatural. It's not natural, it's supernatural. I enjoyed my first couple of computers and I actually even thought I understood quite a bit about how they worked. But when the third generation come out, came out, it was called the 386. Can I get a witness on that 386 operating system? Yeah, you know it. When that came out, I had some computer professionals in my church in Tukwila, and I just said, you know what? There is a whole field of knowledge here, and I am not going to know it, so I'm just going to let them be the experts as I am now, whenever I have a problem, I get on the phone to Andrew. I still call a guy in Tuckwilla. I say, please help me, help me. You know, that's okay for computers and cars and plumbing. You can say, I'm just not going to learn it. I'm going to let somebody else be the expert. But it's not okay with marriage. And it's not okay with the family. God says there is a supernatural wonderful relationship available to you in marriage and in parenting as God allows and enables. And he knows how it works. And we're going to learn that. Heavenly Father, help us. We are so bombarded by our society that sometimes we start to think like them about marriage and about the family Thank you for creating marriage. Thank you for the wonderful relationship that can exist between a man and a woman and the wonderful relationship that can exist between parents and children. Father, we confess that many times we don't have that wonderful experience. We need your help. We're not equipped to do marriage without you and without your word. So we ask for you to inform us to strengthen us, to be there, to be faithful, to do the work as we take steps forward to honor you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.